Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all of the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback from everyone. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. Last month, I mentioned I had created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients. This is now available. The presentation provides snippets of educational information from the chiropractic and related literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016. You can check out sample slides and get a more detailed description on the chiropracticscience.com website. As you know, my goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Secondly is to encourage collaboration of researchers, and third is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. So let's get on with the interview today with Dr. Jim DeVote. I'm really excited that in this interview, we'll discuss topics such as Dr. DeVote's research regarding the biomechanical aspects of chiropractic care on patients, chiropractic treatment of temporomandibular joint disorders, and a study to determine if chiropractic care of special operations forces personnel could improve reaction and response times. Dr. James DeVote is an associate professor in the Palmer Center for Chiropractic Research at Palmer College of Chiropractic. He has a BS in physics from Brigham Young University, a chiropractic degree from Palmer College of Chiropractic, an MS degree in mechanical engineering with an emphasis in biomedical engineering, and a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of Iowa. He was in private practice in New Mexico, and he has spent 11 years on active duty as an officer in the U.S. Army, including two years as a research physicist. For the last 19 years, he has been a research scientist at Palmer and is going to retire this year. He has been a peer reviewer for several journals, including Clinical Biomechanics, Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, and Journal of uh, Manipulative and Physiological Therapeutics, JMPT. He has also been an examiner of the PhD thesis of a research student at Macquarie University in Australia. His research interests include the use of electromyography or EMG to quantify the effect of chiropractic treatment, descriptive studies of chiropractic adjustments, and the chiropractic treatment of temporomandibular joint disorders. Dr. DeVote, it's an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, it's quite an honor to be here. Well, thank you. So, let's go ahead and get started because uh, I've got a lot of uh, different things to talk about today, and uh, you've, you've done a lot of really interesting research, so I want to uh, get through as much as we possibly can. But first, I want to just dive into your story a little bit about how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place. Well, uh, it's kind of an interesting story, I guess you'd say. Uh, my dad's a chiropractor, was a chiropractor. 
he always wanted me to be a chiropractor, uh, but I never had any interest in uh, life sciences at all. I was always more into uh, physical sciences. I was a huge fan of the space race. Uh, I graduated from high school in 65, so that was kind of during the peak of that space race to the, get to the moon. I found that very exciting, and I just sort of assumed that I would probably uh, end up being in aerospace somewhere. But then when I uh, got in school, I was going, I was getting a major, I majored in physics at uh, BYU, Brigham Young. And uh, while I was there, the Vietnam War was going on. I guess I should say the Vietnam conflict. And uh, there were people getting drafted out of school there. And uh, so I thought, well, if I'm going to end up going to Vietnam, I would rather go as an officer than an enlisted guy. So I joined ROTC while I was there. And I graduated in 72. And, but at that time, there were, there were very few people going to Vietnam. It, the conflict wasn't officially over yet, but it was really winding down. And actually, there was more people wanting to go than there were slots over there, people who were going to be career military, and I very happily gave my slot to one of them. Uh, so, but then I was in the Army, and I was, uh, my first tour was as a, a research physicist in Philadelphia at Frankfurt Arsenal, kind of a cushy tour for the Army. And uh, we had never really planned to stay in the Army. Um, I was going to just get out after that tour. But they offered me a tour to Greece. Well, my wife and I had never been out of the country before, and that sounded pretty exotic. And we knew somebody over there, actually, and, and had been riding with them, and they liked it over there. And so and our kids were little then. We only had two, and they were uh, very small. So we thought, well, this would be a great time. So we went over to Greece. And we were there for three years. <laughs> And this is kind of the funny part, I guess. I don't really remember exactly how this happened, but somehow while I was over in Greece, I got the idea of uh, going to chiropractic school. Uh, my dad had pretty well given up on me by this time. When, when I graduated from NYU <laughs> with a degree in physics and a commission in the Army, he pretty, he pretty well <laughs> gave up on trying to ever get me to be a chiropractor. But uh, I, I still wonder about that. But somehow I got to thinking about it over there and decided that I would like to do that. And so I ended up, to make a long story short, I, uh, I did get out of the Army and, uh, and did go to chiropractic school at Palmer there. So that was kind of a, a weird situation. I guess the story doesn't quite end there. Um, so I graduated from Palmer, and then I went down to New Mexico, a little town where my parents lived in, Berlin, New Mexico, about 7,000 people. And I went into practice, but I, I, I didn't like being in practice. <laughs> I didn't like the uh, actually hands-on part of chiropractic. I liked chiropractic and everything, but I, I just didn't seem to have that sense of touch that you need to have to be an effective chiropractor. And so, and to make another really long story short, I ended up uh, participating in this program that Palmer had. They were just looking to get a, into research in a bigger way here at Palmer, and they were funding people to go to graduate school 
you know, people who had a, a DC already to go to graduate school with the idea that they would come back to Palmer and do research. And so that's, I thought, well, this is great, you know, because then I can stay within chiropractic because I love chiropractic. I just didn't like practicing as a chiropractor. And so, uh, again, making a, a really long story short, that's what I did. And I, you know, I ended up getting my PhD finally at the University of Iowa. And I've been involved here at Palmer uh, pretty much ever since. I did stay at the University of Iowa for a couple of few years in a little group called the Iowa Spine Research Center, even though I was employed by Palmer. <laughs> uh, and then I came here about 14 years ago, I think it was. So, okay, yeah, that that's really... Story. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Uh, can you tell me uh, just a little bit more about your PhD program? What what kinds of things did you study, and and were you thinking about how you could apply this stuff to chiropractic at that time, or I'm just kind of curious what was going through your thoughts? Oh yeah, I was yeah I was trying to apply things to chiropractic. Uh, I my advisor was a VJ Goyle, who was a he was the chair of the department at the time, the biomedical engineering department and also a big guy in spine research, and uh, it seemed like a kind of a good fit. H however, his research was, was almost totally dealing with spinal implants and uh, the biomechanical effects of them on the spine. He did a lot of computer modeling uh, funded by uh, implant companies who, who wanted to test their devices uh, on the computer simulations before actually trying them on people. And uh, I wasn't interested in that sort of thing at all. <laughs> so, and this is kind of weird. I, I, I had a really hard time coming up with a topic to do research that was be chiropractic related. Uh, and I talked to quite a few people like Scott Haldeman and like uh, Jay Triano. And just never could really come up with anything that was really doable. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny one day my advisor comes into a meeting and says, hey, we got the perfect idea for you. I had done computer modeling uh, for my master's thesis uh, on intervertebral disc, and I like computer modeling. He said, you could do a computer model of the, of the subluxation. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, and you can do that in one oh. year, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be yeah, a short project, on. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sort of thought, well, that's a nice thought, but uh, thanks, <laughs> but uh, no thanks. So I was wandering around for quite a little while trying to come up with a topic, and and uh, the vice chair of the, the Department of Hospital Dentistry came over to the Biomedical Engineering Department. As I said, my advisor was the chair, and she was wanting to get a graduate student to, to make a computer simulation of the jaw, the TMJ, temporal mandibular joint, uh, because their treatments for TMJ disorders uh, weren't working very well, and they thought well, they could get a better understanding of the biomechanics of it. Maybe they could uh, devise a better treatment. And so she wanted somebody to do this, this project, the computer modeling, finite element modeling, as they call it, uh, of the TMJ. And so my advisor tells me about that. And I said, well, you know, that's not exactly chiropractic. And he said, well, chiropractors treat TMJ problems, don't they? 
And I said, well, yeah, I mean, there are some that do. Uh, that's not certainly mainstream chiropractic at all. Uh, I don't know, I was kind of hem-hawing around, but we never could come up with a better project, so I ended up doing that. And I ended up having a um, second advisor, the vice chair who had come over there, vice chair of the Department of Hospital Dentistry. And so between those two advisors, I that's what I did my PhD thesis on was a computer simulation of the of the jaw, trying to look at the biomechanics of it. So, it. and that's kind of how I got interested in TMJ issues too. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And we'll, and we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later today as well. So I know that uh, you have authored numerous publications in a variety of excellent peer-reviewed journals. And what I'd like to do is uh, pick some of these uh, papers and some of the uh, projects that you've worked on over the years um, and just just have a conversation about each one. So I'd like to get started on at least one of your current projects. I, I, I don't know all of your current projects, but uh, I know one uh, because I'm working on it with you. <laughs> and that is uh, the, uh, the study dealing with the Department of Defense and chiropractic care in regard to reaction time and response times. So if we could talk about this study just for a little bit, uh, it, the, the results are, are not in yet, uh, to my knowledge, but uh, we could certainly talk about the, uh, the methods and, and the protocol for the paper. So can you, uh, can you give us an idea of how the study was conceived? How did, how did it come about? Well, the Department of Defense put out a request for proposals for these particular projects. There were three different projects that were all kind of lumped into one request. And uh, so that this was not our idea at all. But they, they made the rather interesting request to see whether, whether chiropractic treatment could improve the reaction time of Special Operations Forces personnel. And that, we thought that was a really interesting request because, I mean, these guys, these are like the Navy SEALs, the ones that went in to get bin Laden. I mean, these are the cream of the crop. These are highly uh, active, physical, fit people. <laughs> and, of course, the reaction time is very important to them. Uh, and a lot of it could literally be the difference between life and death in some cases. So it's an interesting question. And that's, but we didn't ask the question. We just came up with a way of of trying to answer the question. So that's how it came about. Got it. So can you give us an idea of uh, what what this particular study involves? What are the different components, and uh, what kinds of things are are we measuring in this study? Well, we came up with five different measurements <laughs> after. After considering several others, uh, looking back on them now, it would have been pretty impractical. <laughs> but uh, we settled on five. Now, two or three of them are pretty much pure reaction time. Reaction time meaning the, the time to begin a response to a prompt. So we we had two versions of, of a simple reaction time, meaning <clears throat> the a prompt appears on a computer screen and the participant is just holding the button in their hand and they just press the button when they see the prompt on the screen. And there's a, there can be a delay, there's a delay between prompts and that delay varies from a half a second to four seconds. 
So they can't really anticipate when the next prompt's going to be exactly. And uh, so there's, there's very little motion. They see the prompt and they just press their thumb. So that's pretty, pretty close to pure reaction time. And then we did a, another one just like that, except that we had their foot resting on a pedal on the floor, and they would press the pedal with their foot. So those are two reaction times. And then to make it a little more interesting, a little more challenging, we had the participants sitting there holding the button in each hand and, hold, and having each foot over a pedal on the floor. And then a prompt would come on the screen, and it would not only tell them to push a button, but it would tell them which one to push. And it would be, and they didn't have to read the prompt. It would, by the uh, appearance on the screen, it was in the upper left corner. It was for the left hand and, and so forth, lower left corner, the left foot, so forth. So they could see by the uh, position of it, and they had, but they had to make a choice as to which button or pedal to push. And uh, that was that was kind of a a fun one to watch. But people do that because they'd be going along and they'd push the button, and, the, and as soon as they push it, they, they'd realize it was the wrong one, and they'd go, "Ooh!" That was <laughs> they, it's like they, they, almost like they got stabbed or something. Oops! You know, then, Ooh, <laughs> yeah, they'd flinch, you know. <laughs> So, so those those were those were reaction times, and then there's two other ones that were uh, response times. That meaning there was a little more physical motion involved, so it wasn't just a, a trivial amount of motion, but a little more motion than that. And so, one of them was one that you had worked with, the one that you had introduced me to was Fitz Law type of experiments, where there's two circles on the screen. Uh, when they begin, the two circles appear on the screen. The mouse, is, the cursor is in one, and there's an X on the other one. And the person uh, moves the uh, using the mouse moves the cursor from the where it is to the other one, the one that has the X in it. And as soon as they click in that other one inside it, then the X goes out there and it pops up in the other one where they started. And then they go back, move the cursor back with the mouse, and click inside that one. And, and then that pair is over. And timing stops at that point, by the way. And so then it, timing just stops at that point. But then when they're ready for another pair of circles to appear, they, they click on the mouse anywhere on the screen. And then the two circles appear again. And they could be different sizes and different orientations. The centers are always the same distance apart, but they could be different sizes and orientation. And so then, then they would go through that pair of circles, and then the time would stop again at that point. Great. So that was a response time one. The other response time was what we call the, well, not we call it, what is called the T-Wall. It's a commercially available device. Uh, we, we were doing this down at Fort Campbell, uh, Kentucky. Uh, this is where the nearest place where they have special forces personnel. <laughs> and uh, while we were down there, they had one of these devices in their physical therapy department, and so they said, well, "Why don't you do something like this?" And, then, and I said, "Well, it looks pretty good, actually." And what that is is that there's this panel of buttons that are like eight centimeters square, pretty good-sized little buttons, and you stand in front of this panel. There's 32 of them in a four by eight array, and a light comes on on one of them, an inside light inside the button comes up. And uh, the timing starts as soon as the participant hits that first button. And, of course, as soon as they hit the first button, that light goes out, and then another one comes out on. So they got to see where that one is and then hit it. 
And it's not just a little touch. You can't just touch it. You have to kind of smack it pretty good. And then there it goes through a sequence of 100 of those. And it usually takes about one minute or a little less to go through 100. So those are five different tests. Three were pretty much pure reaction time and two that were uh, more of a response time. Okay. So how many people were in the study and what, was, uh, what kind of design study was it? Well, we had, we, we had 120 people randomized into two groups, one that received chiropractic treatment. They came in for four visits, um, and so we measured them before they had their first treatment, and then we measured them again before they had their last treatment. So they really only had three treatments um, as far as the test concerns, as far as the improvement to be able to see would go. But that was, there was over a two-week period. They came in twice a week for two weeks for those four treatments. So and then, and then there was another wait list, what we call a wait list control group, where they came in on a, like the first visit, the same way as the first visit, and they got tested there. But then they didn't get any treatment. They just uh, sat around for five or ten minutes, uh, ten minutes I guess it was, uh, to simulate the time of the actual treatment, and then they were tested again right after that as well. But, but we were really using the time just before the treatment. Uh, and then they didn't come in for those other two visits, but they came in at the same time, like 10 days later, uh, for, for a second version of the testing to see if they improved over that time. So it was a wait list control group there. And, and then they call it wait list because in order to give them an incentive to be in the study, they said when, once they finished the study, then they received four treatments of chiropractic, chiropractic, chiropractic treatments just like the other ones did. But that wasn't really part of the study. That was just, you know, to give them an incentive to be in the study. It took about 21 months. We, did, we have finished the data collection. Uh, it took about 21 months to get 120 people. I think there was 157 total that were screened, I think 57, 177, I guess. I remember, anyway, something like that. I think we screened out 57 that were not eligible. But anyway, yeah, the data collection is completed. In fact, we wrote a we wrote a uh, a protocol paper to be published in trials. And just yesterday, I got word that it has been accepted for publication. By the way, great, great. So, yeah. So now, now, now I'm starting to work on the results paper. So when we get those, that'll all go in there. And that'll be a second paper about this study. Okay, perfect. So I'm just curious, what was your, what was this uh, project like compared to other projects you've worked on? It, it sounds uh, pretty involved. And I know, like, I know what it was like trying to come up with the methods, but I know that you traveled back and forth to the base uh, quite a few times, and I, I only made it there once. So what, what was it like? I'm just well, curious. Well, yeah, that, yeah that, that was, that was, a, that was, this is the first time, actually, we did this kind of a study where the actual data collection was not done here. You know, I, you and I came up with all of the, the tests and so forth, and, and, and I, here I did a preliminary pilot study to kind of test everything out, in which we made some pretty major revisions to the way we were doing things. Um, but when the actual data was done, of course, we had to go somewhere where there were special forces people, and there aren't any here, so we, we couldn't do it here. <laughs> What you mean, so Palmer isn't? Palmer doesn't have a bunch of special ops. 
Uh, afraid not. Nope. <laughs> there might be one or two. I don't know if there's any, but one or two at most, I'm sure. So yeah, that was that was challenging and, uh, to go down there and get everything all set up, all the equipment to do all the stuff with, and and then to train somebody down there to do it, and uh, you know, and then to, to kind of monitor from the distance how things were going. Uh, that was. There were some challenges with that. It was it was very a very different kind of thing for us to do that from a distance like that. But it did finally work out. There were some challenges associated with that, but it worked out pretty smoothly. Yeah, that's that's really that's really cool. Probably probably not that I had to deal with this, but one complex thing about this was that there was there were three IRB boards associated with this project, and so everything that we did had to be approved by all three, and so. You would send things to one, and they would look at it, and they'd say, "Well, I don't like this or that," you know. So you change this or that, and then and then you'd send it to the second one, and the second one say, "Okay, what's well, okay?" Except I don't like this or that, something else, and then so you change those. But then you had to send it back to the first one <laughs> to make sure they were okay with those changes. Yeah, that's and then tough. And once they were both okay with those changes, then you had to send it to the third one, who likely had some issues about certain things, and then so then you had to send that back to the other two. I mean, it was a huge, huge hassle to deal with this. And, and it's not like they have IR, IR board meetings every day or anything either, you know. So right. it, it took a long time right. to get through that. Yeah, and I gen- didn't have to deal with that personally. And generally, <laughs> people are volunteering their time. So you're right. It's not like uh, it's not going to get done right away. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and then sometimes they'd, they'd, they'd see something and they didn't like it. We'd have to review it. Then, change it and then they have to review it again it just it just drug on forever i mean i can't remember how long it was and like i say we have other administrative people here who handle that sort of thing thank thank goodness yeah but they were like pulling their hair out (laughs) and i was just thinking and i'm just there well we ready yet we're ready yet well no no you know we had the equipment sitting up set up down there i can't remember now for some long time it was like several months Close to a year, maybe even before we actually got all the approvals from everybody, before we could actually begin. Even though we were already with everything ready to go. Right, right. So that was that was a very different aspect of this particular study. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really cool. Well, um, I wanted to get through uh, the next couple of papers. Uh, deal with electromyography, and uh, the first one that I'd like to talk about was from JMPT uh, and this was from 2005. And the goal of the study was to examine the effect of uh, spinal manipulation on EMG activity in areas of localized tight muscle bundles of the low back. Can you tell us about that study? Yeah, this is when, this is when I was still up at the university of Iowa, um, in the Iowa spine research center group there. Uh, and I just went down to a couple of local chiropractors and asked if uh, I could set up in their shop a little bit there. <laughs> and what they did, I'd have them, when a patient came in with, with low back pain that was fairly significant, I would ask, they would ask if they would volunteer to be in the study and all the, and they'd say, okay. I don't, we never had anybody decline, I don't think. So I would have the, the, the chiropractor go along and palpate along the, the low back and, and figure out what he thought were the, the tightest two muscle bundles in there. And then I would put EMG 
electrodes over there. Those are, those are the things that sense the electrical activity going to the muscles. So if, if uh, you have a tight muscle bundle, you would expect the EMG level to be a little higher because those are those tight because the muscles are overactive. And uh, then we were thinking, well, it would if the adjustment releases the tight muscle bundle, then you ought to be able to see a reduction in the EMG level immediately following the adjustment. And uh, so I did that. I think I had five or six, six I can't remember how many patients in each doctor's office. And, uh, and they were very accommodating, the two doctors and the patients. You know, I took these wires up. This is, this is before we had wireless stuff, too. There was all those wires everywhere. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I could see the, the, one, the one chiropractor used the activator methods. The other chiropractor was more diversified. And, uh, and also, I'd hooked up an accelerometer to the tip of the activator when they were doing that so that and I and I, the accelerometer is a transducer. It just senses acceleration. So when the activator instrument was was activated, <laughs> the that the accelerometer would send a signal out, and I and I took the, that signal and fed it into the EMG system so that it was recorded just like another channel of EMG, and therefore it was the timing was the same. So I could see on my plots. Of data, I could see the MG activity, and I could also see the, the exact timing of the click of the activator uh, along with the EMG activity. And um, there were there were times that I was able to see a very distinct drop effect. I have on my wall <laughs> right now my favorite plot, which which shows very elevated EMG activity shows a few clicks of the activator. And then, interestingly enough, it's about maybe two or three seconds later that that uh, at the EMG activity dropped just like a step down, just like drastically. Just I mean, didn't just gradually drop down, just immediately dropped down. But, but that was like two or three seconds after the click. And then it was still at a moderately higher level. And then there were a few more clicks given the first ones were along the the uh, the, uh, the sacrum, and then the other ones were along the the lumbars there, and then there was another drastic step down to a more local level, and uh, again that was that drop occurred a few seconds after the clicks were given, and then I shut the instrument off or the EMG system off for, until the the doc finished the treatment. So then, like five or ten minutes later, just before they were they were going to come up, I turned it on again and took a little more data just so you could see how that compared. And it it was always the same before and after the break. They were never changed uh, during those minutes. But you could and and you could see a very distinct drop of sometimes. Like like I make the point, it was my favorite plot. That I have <laughs> on the wall. Most of. The, <laughs> That's very distinct. It's very classic. It's just like we were expecting to see, uh, but we didn't see that most of the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we did see it some, some of the time. So did you find differences between the activator and the diversified at all? Um, I, I, no, they, they think they were pretty much the same. I don't 
quite remember, but uh, tell you the truth, but uh, it was a little harder to get the exact time on the uh, on the on the diversified because I, I had a man. I was sort of holding the accelerometer in my hand, and I was just going to flip it when he made his adjustment because okay, it wasn't it wasn't quite as easy, but but it still it showed up as I recall pretty much the same. Okay, they both got that reduction occasionally, not usually, gotta say. In fact, I was quite surprised that most of the time the EMG activity wasn't really that much elevated, if any, beforehand. And so huh. you're not gonna see a drop if it's not elevated. Right, right. Because um, I don't know I don't know I didn't have any way of really quantifying how tight the muscle bundles were. I just said, well find find the tightest muscle bundle you can. Got it. So how tight is tight? You know, so I don't know. Sure, sure. So the the next that was pretty interesting. That was pretty interesting, though. I oh thought. yeah, oh yeah. That uh, I think that's uh, uh, phenomenal. You know, looking into that and adding the acceleration piece to it and getting the timing is is pretty amazing. To see that, uh, I'm I'm actually uh, I was just thinking about the two second. I mean. Why two seconds? Maybe maybe it just takes that long for uh, you know cross bridges to start to relax or something like that. I'm in the muscle. I'm not sure, but do you have any thoughts as to why why two seconds or? Well, my I mean I, I don't really know, of course, but my thought was that it's probably this, the CNS is kind of cogitating over that information because it, it wasn't. Like so like I say, it, it wasn't a gradual decline. It was just very abrupt. I mean, you look at the plot, and it's just like, it's just very abrupt. So it, it doesn't seem to me like it's kind of a gradual relaxation of something that you're watching here. You know, Got it. It seems to me like it's something from the CNS directing okay. it differently after it concentrated. That's my thought. I mean, I have no idea, really. But that's, Right, right. No, I like I like I like your thought. It makes uh, makes a lot of sense, and it's a really interesting um, study for sure. Now, and then the next study that I wanted to talk about is also an EMG study, and that this just uh, came out. Um, I think this uh, past month, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this was uh, yeah. uh, the title of it was novel electromyographic protocols for or using axial rotation and cervical flexion relaxation for the assessment of subjects with neck pain. And this was in uh, Journal of Chiropractic Medicine. And like I said, just came out. So um, this one you're going to have to uh, help me out with because I was, I was trying to read through the paper and I'm not sure I got all of the information right in my head. So um, can you tell us about uh, what what this study was designed to try to look at and, and what you found? Well, the notion here, and I kind of like EMG in general because I figure it's kind of a window into the current functioning of the musculature So, without being invasive. So I kind of like the, at least the general notion of EMG. And... The thought of this is um, a fairly common thing. Well, it started in the lumbars is what they call the lumbar f uh, flexion relaxation phenomenon. The the notion is that as you if you're standing straight up and then lean forward, 
your paraspinal muscles in your back are going to be quite active as they're holding you up and, and, and lifting you up or letting you go down sort of, but you're, it's, it's the paraspinal muscles in the back primary that are holding you. And uh, so they're active as you're rising and lower. But when you get to the end of the range of motion, when you're full forward, flex fully forward, then the, the range of motion is limited by ligaments. And so ligaments are like little ropes. They don't use any energy. So when you get to the end of the range of motion, the weight of the, your upper body can be held by the ligaments without any muscle activity. And, and your very efficient uh, CNS realizes this. And so the uh, muscle activity decreases when you're fully flexed and then increases again as you come back up. And in fact, it's more active when you're coming back up because, you know, they're actually pulling you up instead of allowing you to come down in a controlled way. So <laughs> that's called the flexion of the station phenomenon. Now, of course, if a person has back problems, you typically have hyperactive musculature there and spasms and so forth. And so you're going to see uh, activity even when you're fully flexed. So this, and you can quantify this by comparing the, degree of activity when it's on the way on the way up the maximum amount to the minimum amount of when it's fully flexed so it should be quite different and but if you have back problems then they're not so different because it doesn't fully relax when you're down there so it's it's a kind of an objective way to get a an indication of your um, the integrity of your musculoskeletal system there in that region the lumbar thing has been around for a long time. Just in, in recent years, they started doing this in the cervicals as well. And uh, so you start with your head up and flex forward, just like you do with the lumbar, just but only just using your cervicals. But there's a but the, there's a company, Myovision, who uh, markets an EMG system, and they they have a little different way of doing it, where they to monitor how well that musculature is functioning. Instead of doing the flexion forward kind of thing, they rotate your head to the left and right. So one, one side, the, the muscle on one side of your neck will be more active when you're pulling to one side, and then the mirror image would be when you're pulling the other side. So by measuring the activity of those muscles, you get a similar kind of thing, but... Uh, I like it better, actually, because it seems like you get more distinct readings and it's easier for the patient to perform. So I was kind of fascinated, but there weren't any peer-reviewed articles about this axial rotation phenomenon at all. Uh, Myovision had published something in their own stuff, but there wasn't, it wasn't peer-reviewed. And uh, so this study kind of looked at that, and we, and we did some variations of the way these studies, the way these tests were done. And uh, I just thought it was kind of a novel thing, so I, I liked that idea. And that's, that was kind of the point of that. I kind of recommended the, the axial rotation part of it as, as, the, as the most, uh, I don't know, preferred method of monitoring the muscular activity there in the cervicals. Okay. 
So um, now, did you have any people with neck pain in the study at all, or were these people all yeah, without symptoms? Or yeah, yeah, we did. We had neck pain people. We, we went to a neck to a pain center and got some volunteers. And uh, yeah, it, it it came out you know quite encouraging that it does seem to help and uh, it works better. And they, as expected, you know they. Uh, yeah, it worked out pretty good, better than, I mean, it. the differences in the musculature is not as apparent in the neck pain people as it is in the people who are normal. Okay. Because your muscles quiet down, you know, when they're not being needed. Sim- similar to the uh, flexion relaxation phenomenon. Got it. So they just had, uh, the people with neck pain just tended to have a higher baseline level and the, and it didn't seem to calm down quite as much as the, the controls. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As the person moved left from left to right, depending on which muscle you're monitoring, you see a large peak when they went one way as it was activated. And then when they went the other way, it didn't peak. And uh, then when you did the mirror image of that muscle on the other side, it was the reverse, you know. So you get this nice peak in one direction, but not in the other direction, or a much smaller peak. And those peaks are very pronounced and much easier to to measure and so forth. Much more consistent, it seemed to me, anyway, than the flexion relaxation part. So I liked it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's great. Well, hopefully they uh, continue on. Um, someone continues on with that kind of uh, line. It seems good, and then. Uh, it would be interesting to see how adjustments uh, affect that um, uh, also. Yep, it would. Good line of research there for somebody. Yeah, absolutely. So the ne- Not the- you since I'm retiring next week. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, uh-oh. <laughs> well, um, we're, we're going to have to find somebody to do that for sure. Uh so the the next studies uh, that I wanted to to go through and and you've done several studies dealing with TMJ, including your your dissertation. Um, can can you tell us uh, a bit about um, some of these studies? I'm particularly interested in in any that might have involved uh, chiropractic care as well. Well, the way the way I specifically got involved in this as a chiropractor, I mean, I did my PhD, you know, with that, but that. But that was uh, there was no chiropractic involved in that at all, and uh, uh, and by the way, we didn't really find anything to help anything. <laughs> we didn't seem to be able to understand the biomechanics any better, and they weren't able to improve their treatments any because mm. of all my mm. three or four years of work on that. But um, anyway, at one time I was still at the University of Iowa. Like I say, I was there with the spine research group, and uh, the University of Iowa initiated a CAM clinic, complimentary alternative medicine clinic, in the in the hospital. So they once a week they would ha- they would meet and they would have a group of CAM uh, providers of various sorts. Uh, there's an acupuncturist and uh, I don't know, uh, I think healing touch. And there's there was about probably six or eight different people there. There's a religious guy there. Uh, I can't remember what all they were, but. And one of them was a chiropractor, and and this chiropractor happened to be somebody that I knew. In fact, it was the same guy that I had done this other 
study with I was just telling you about, about the reduction of EMG activity. Okay. And uh, so I knew him, and he was going to these meetings, and he asked me if I wanted to go along with him. And I thought, well, yeah, that'd be kind of interesting, you know. So, <laughs> so I would go to these weekly meetings with him. And uh, one time in one of these meetings, there was a somebody that was there. Now, this is, this is just after I graduated, you know, with my Ph.D., so I'm still there at the University of Iowa, but I'm working with this other little group. So uh, there was one of these cases that had one of the, one of the problems this person had was that was a pretty strong TMJ issue, pretty bad case of TMD, temporal mandibular disorder. And uh, on the way out, this chiropractor mentions to me. Uh, I I give I do pretty good work with with TMJ problems, and uh, <laughs> uh, this is Wally Schaefer, by the way, there in Coralville, right next to Iowa City. And I said, "Oh yeah, uh, how good are you?" He said, "Well, pretty good, I guess. I mean, they come in, I treat them, and they get better." I said, "Well, would you be?" interested in, in comparing your approach to a dental approach because I'd gotten to know this department vice chair very well in these last few years and I knew that she was interested in TMD treatment and so I thought well we could she would probably be interested in doing something like this if, if you think you have some better way of treating it and he said well yeah I guess so I set up a meeting for the three of us <laughs> In that first meeting, the first two meetings, kind of interesting. <clears throat> Even though I had worked with her closely for a few years, and she knew I was a chiropractor, I mean, chiropractic had not come into this at all. You know, there had never been any discussion about chiropractic, and she didn't really know much of anything about chiropractic. And uh, so, before she could get involved with something like this, she wanted to have some sense of what she was getting involved with. And uh, I don't remember. What we said, actually, I think it must have been quite a few years ago now, but it must have been pretty good because after those first two visits, there was never any, that, that question never came up again. She was okay. <laughs> wow, that's cool. So, what it, yeah, so whatever it was that we said, it eased her mind to the point that she was willing to work with us with no further reservations. So anyway, the, the most Probably the most dramatic thing that I've done is, is, a, is the most practical thing that I've done as chiropractor is what we, we've, <clears throat> one of the first things we did was we set up a, a prospective case series, meaning that we just uh, took people as they came in, new patients who came into his office, we would uh, check them for their degree, if they had TMD, we'd make some measurements to quantify how bad the TMV, how, how far they could open their mouth without pain. Uh, there were some pain scales that we used and so forth. So we would measure them, and then he would treat them, and then we would measure them again and see how they improved. And we had like nine that came through, I think it was, and they all got better. <laughs> and uh, so we published a paper about that. Well, we presented a, we presented this at a, at a ACRAC meeting, and Arlen Four, the head of Activator, uh, was there, and, the, and this guy, Wally Schaefer, uses Activator, but Activator 
had some years before did have some kind of a protocol for TMD, but when they published their first textbook, they did not include it because it it didn't seem to work very well, and there were people getting hurt with it, and so they did not include it in their first textbook. But this guy Wally Schaefer um, took the rudimentary part of that process, that protocol, and developed into something that did work and didn't cause injury. And so Arlen Ford thought that was hot stuff <laughs> and actually kind of put that in, into the activator protocol. And then when the second textbook came out, they had uh, Wally and me jointly write a chapter about TMD, treatment of TMD. I wrote the part about TMD itself, describing it and the mechanism and so forth. And then Wally wrote the part about how you actually treat it. So that was pretty exciting. That was a very rewarding thing for me. I mean, I didn't, I didn't discover anything. I didn't invent anything. I just, but I happened to run across somebody who did, and he would have just been still doing this by himself there in his office there in Coralville, Iowa. <laughs> but now, because this this study that we did now is it's published. It's in the te activator textbook and. Activator clinicians use that now, so that was very rewarding. To, rewarding for me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, what what was the technique like? It, it used an activator. Was there are there specific spots that uh, uh, the doctor would use to to adjust the jaw? Or I'm just trying to imagine what oh, yeah. what that would look like. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, if you're familiar with activator procedure at all, they have various movements that you do that supposed to that elicit a, 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 a leg length difference and they use the near field leg check approach a lot okay. and he's come up with several tests to check for different types of thrust or whether they're needed or not and and uh, yeah he it's it's very much like the regular activator protocol but just applied to that particular region Okay, uh, got it. He uses a, very, uses a very gentle touch. In fact, he uses the lowest setting on the activator and then puts his thumb over the segment anyway, so the adjustment is given through his thumb to the joint itself. Very gentle. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it seems to work very nicely. Well, that's great. <laughs> I should say one time, I, kind of a funny little thing, Wally was telling me that he was traveling sometime somewhere, and in the midst of his travels in some place, he just, was passing through, he needed an adjustment, so he stopped in at this guy he could see that was an activator practitioner. And uh, so uh, the guy's working him over, and this guy doesn't know who Wally Schaefer is or anything. He's working him over, and he starts doing some of the checks for the jaw on Wally. And uh, so Wally kind of asks him about it, and he says, oh, yeah, this is new stuff that just came out. It's great stuff. I love it. You know, it's been, <laughs> I've helped many people with it. <laughs> Got to love that when that happens. That <laughs> he was adjusting the guy that came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's spectacular. I love that. <laughs> So, so Jim, one of the uh, one of the goals of the podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. With the with the many years that you've had uh, in chiropractic science and chiropractic research, uh, what 
what kind of advice might you give uh, uh, folks who are looking to get into a research career in chiropractic? Well, uh, there there are several ways of doing that, I guess. I mean, uh, uh, I guess, of course, the best thing is to get your DC degree first so you have a basis to work from, although it's not absolutely necessary. We have people here in the research center uh, who don't have a DC degree. But, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess there isn't uh, any magic way to do this. Uh, the Palmer does offer a master's degree in, uh, I forget what the exact name of it is, it's clinical, clinical research or something like that. Uh, or you, if you're, I mean, if you're really, if you're really interested, you know, really want to get into it, you know, you can do something like that. I had a person here as a, a work study person, who just helped me with my publications and so forth. And as she was going to Palmer, and she'd never done any research or anything, but as she was seeing me involved in my research, she became interested in the possibility and, and did what we call a research honors program here. So they do a, a project. Uh, with a mentor uh, while they're while they're a student, and then graduate with research honors, and uh, and so she ended up doing that, and uh, <laughs> she discovered that she really liked doing that sort of thing. In fact, so now she's down at Missouri uh, getting her PhD in neuroscience. <laughs> wow, good stuff. Yeah. So if you really want to get into, you can get you know into that realm of things. If we're another project I'm working on right now is what we call practice-based research, where and this is a TMD issue again here, trying to uh, see how this works in the field in general, uh, where we're soliciting people who use a particular technique that we're interested in, like activator in this case as well as a few others we thought we'd explore, too, like SOT and NUCA and Blair. And we approached chiropractor in the field and say, okay, well, would you like to be involved in this project? What it amounts to is, it's, it's kind of like, it's just like that case series I did with Wally, uh, where, where they just, as patients come through the door with a particular disorder that we're looking for, then they take some measurements on them at the first visit, and then once, once or two, twice later on, and see how they improved. And so it's just, they just go through the regular treatment. They don't do anything different. Uh, the only thing different is that they're filling out these forms, you know, at the beginning and kind of along the way. And so this gives uh, chiropractors in the field the opportunity to be involved in an actual research project, uh, which I think would be kind of interesting to a lot of people. And, of course, if you want to, you know, you could always read the, It'd be a good idea to be reading literature. JMPT uh, and others have uh, good information in them to kind of keep up with what's going on. So there's no magic thing here, but uh, those are kind of general things that come to mind. Yeah, great. Do you have any uh, concluding remarks you'd like to share with everyone? Probably people listening will be a mixture. I guess some researchers probably listening. Uh, uh, lots of practitioners, maybe even some patients. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, to me, it, it's it's been 
uh, very frustrating in a lot of ways. My under, like I said, my undergraduate degree was in physics, where the laws are very precise. I mean, the law of gravity, you can predict things right to the nth decimal point. But uh, when you get into the life sciences, there's nothing precise. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it can be very frustrating at times. Uh, so you, and you have to be uh, aware of that when you get into this, that things don't work out cut and dried very often, <laughs> if ever. <laughs> and you just have to kind of expect that as you're going along. And... Uh, so I guess it takes large numbers of people to get any kind of data usually. There's so many variables. I mean, you say you get a person with a certain disorder and you want to get everybody with that same disorder. Well, they, everybody's an individual person, you know, and they may have that disorder, but they, they've got a lot of other little variances too, you know. And so you can never have a, a, a study with everybody exactly the same except for the one thing you're studying. You know, they've got a lot of other issues too. So... That makes it difficult, uh, makes it challenging, but it's just part of the game. You know, you just have to deal with it and do the best you can, and uh, we keep plugging on. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate um, you being on the podcast. I, I learned a few tidbits uh, about you that I didn't know before. Like, I didn't know your dad was a chiropractor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he graduated in 1930. Wow. From Palmer? From Palmer, yep. All right. Good stuff. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I'd say he's a little, he was, he's a little older. I was, he was 50 years old when I was born. <laughs> oh, okay. 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 I remember seeing B.J. Palmer here one time when I was a kid. We came, when he came back for homecoming, they called Lyceum then. Um, I just barely, I just vague, I was like only in the fourth or fifth grade, but uh, I I do remember seeing B.J. Palmer one time. <laughs> wow. That's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. Well, Jim, I, I really appreciate you spending some time uh, before you retire to, to talk with me and, and to come on the podcast. Uh, this, was, this was terrific. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Like I say, everybody's always entitled to my opinion. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Thanks again. Take care. You bet. Uh, Bye-bye.